reading from Mark chapter 6, verse 53 up to uh, 8, verse 9. So quite a long reading. Mark chapter 6 from verse 53. When they had crossed over, that's crossed over the Lake of Galilee, they came to the land of Gennesaret and moored to the shore. And when they got out of the boat, the people immediately recognized him and ran about the whole region and began to bring the sick people to their beds, uh, on their beds to wherever they heard he was. And wherever he came in the villages, cities, or countryside, they laid the sick in the marketplaces and implored him that they might touch even the fringe of his garment. And as many as touched it were made well. Now, when the Pharisees gathered to him with some of the scribes who had come from Jerusalem, they saw that some of his disciples ate with hands that were defiled, that is, unwashed. For the Pharisees and all the Jews do not eat unless they wash their hands properly, holding to the tradition of the elders. And when they come from the marketplace, they do not eat unless they wash. And there are many other traditions that they observe, such as the washing of cups and pots and copper vessels and dining couches. And the Pharisees and the scribes asked him, Why do your disciples not walk according to the tra traditions of the elders, but eat with defiled hands? And he said to them, well did, Isaiah the prophesy, prophesy, well did Isaiah prophesy of you hypocrites, as it is written, This people honors me with their lips, but their hearts are far from me. In vain do they worship me, teaching as doctrines the commandments of men. You leave the commandment of God and hold on to the tradition of men. And he said to them, You have a fine way of rejecting the commandments of God in order to establish your tradition. For Moses said, Honor your father and mother, and whoever reviles father or mother must surely die. But you say, If a man tells his father or his mother, Whatever you would have gained from me is korban, that is, given to God, then you no longer permit him to do anything for his father or mother, thus making void the word of God by your tradition that you have handed down. And many such things you do. And he called the people to him again and said to them, Hear me, all of you, and understand. There is nothing outside a person that by going into him can defile him. But the things that come out of a person are what defile him. And when he had entered the house and left the people, his disciples asked him about the parable. And he said to them, Then are you also without understanding? Do you not see that whatever goes into a person from outside cannot defile him, since it enters his heart? Sorry, since it enters not his heart, but his stomach, and is expelled. Thus he declared all foods clean. And he said, What comes out of a person is what defiles him. For from within, out of the heart of man, come evil thoughts, sexual immorality, theft, murder, adultery, 
coveting, wickedness, deceit, sensuality, envy, slander, pride, foolishness. All these evil things come from within and they defile a person. From there, he arose and went to the region of Tyre and Sidon. And he entered a house and did not want anyone to know. Yet he could not be hidden. But immediately a woman whose little daughter had an unclean spirit heard of him and came and fell down at his feet. Now the woman was a Gentile, a Syrophoenician by birth. And she begged him to cast the demon out of her daughter. And he said to her, Let the children be fed first, for it is not right to take the children's bread and throw it to the dogs. But she answered him, Yes, Lord, yet even the dogs under the table eat the children's crumbs. And he said to her, For this statement you may go your way. The demon has left your daughter. And she went home and found the child lying in the bed and the demon gone. Then he returned from the region of Tyre and went through Sidon to the Sea of Galilee in the region of the Decapolis. And, and they brought to him a man who was deaf and had a speech impediment. And they begged him to lay his hands on him. And taking him aside from the crowd privately, he put his fingers into his ears and after spitting, touched his tongue. And looking up to heaven, he sighed and said to him, Ephatha, that is, be opened. And his ears were opened, his tongue was released, and he spoke plainly. And Jesus charged them to tell no one. But the more he charged them, the more zealously they proclaimed. And they were astonished beyond measure, saying, He has done all things well. He even makes the deaf hear and the mute speak. In those days, when again a great crowd had gathered and they had nothing to eat, he called his disciples to him and said to them, I have compassion on the crowd, because they have been with me now three days and have nothing to eat. And if I send them away hungry to their homes, they will faint on the way, and some of them have come from far away. And his disciples answered him, How can one feed these people with bread here in this desolate place? And he asked them, How many loaves do you have? And they said, Seven. And he directed the crowd to sit down on the ground, and he took the seven loaves, and having given thanks, he broke them and gave them to his disciples to set before the people. And they set before them, and they set them before the crowd. And they had a few small fish, and having blessed them, he said that these also should be set before them. And they ate and were satisfied, and they took up all the broken pieces left over, seven baskets full. And there were about 4,000 people, and he sent them away. This is the word of the Lord. Father in heaven, write your eternal truths upon our hearts. As we hear your word, may we be changed. Amen. Is God fair? 
Last week I was chatting with someone after the service who asked me, how is it fair that some people get to hear the gospel and be saved, and some people who don't get to hear the gospel will never be saved? Now you have probably heard this objection phrased in other ways. What about person X from tribe somewhere in the deepest, darkest Amazonian jungle? How is it fair for them? Have you ever asked yourself, have you ever asked that question yourself? I guess more importantly, how would you answer that question? I wonder if before today, as you were answering that question, would you have referred to these passages here in the Gospel of Mark? My bet is probably not. And yet, these verses reveal the remarkable answer to that very question that is posed. But, and there's always a but... Are you ready for the answer that these verses will give? Let's dive in and see. Uh, So where are we again? Remember, Jesus has just fed 5,000 people and walked on water. He's in the boat with his disciples. They were meant to head towards Bethsaida, but probably because of the winds on, on the water, they've ended up in a place called Gennesaret. Now, in the last few verses of chapter 6, we see Jesus back to what he's been doing, teaching and healing the sick. And it's about, right about now, right about now that we hear from a group that we haven't heard from in a little while. In fact, we haven't heard from them since chapter 3. And just like annoying houseflies, they appear out of nowhere. Here come the Pharisees. So you can see in verse 2 that they seem to be a little overly concerned with the hands of the disciples. Especially that they've washed them properly before eating. But this isn't just about making sure your hands are clean like I tell my kids to wash their hands before dinner. You can see Mark's take on the issue in verses 3 to 5. So have a look at chapter 7, verses 3 to 5 with me. Read with me. Verse 3. For the Pharisees and all the Jews do not eat unless they wash their hands properly, holding to the tradition of the elders. And when they come from the marketplace, they do not eat unless they wash. And there are many other traditions that they observe, such as the washing of cups and pots and copper vessels and dining couches. And the Pharisees and the scribes asked him, Why do your disciples not walk according to the tradition of the elders, but eat with defiled hands? And do you notice what gets repeated three times in these verses? The word traditions. This isn't just about washing hands. This is about their traditions. See, God had given his people a whole set of laws in the Old Testament, in the books of Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy, uh, laws that, that told the people of God, this is what it means to be a follower of me. Lots of those laws revolved around holiness, around being clean. If you wanted to come to God and worship him, you had to be clean in his sight, clean of impurity, clean of sin clean of anything that was unholy in God's sight. Now, what the Pharisees had done was what any good lawyer would do. They worked out all the details of what this all meant, and they created a whole bunch of other laws and rules on top. And so over the years, they created a whole host of rules and traditions that they basically enforced on everyone. And as you can see in verse 4, it involved not only cleaning ritual, uh, the ritual cleaning of their hands, but also of cups and pots and vessels and even the dining couches that they lay down on. These are not rules found in God's laws. These are their traditions that the Pharisees have made up. And here's the thing. 
the moment you start creating a system of rules and regulations on how to keep the law, then it can quickly become just about keeping those rules, keeping the traditions we have set up. Faith is no longer necessary. Jesus takes us up in verses 6 to 7. He calls them out, you hypocrites. Quoting from Isaiah 29, Jesus shows how this tendency to honor God with our lips and not with our heart has been there for ages. See, that's the danger of relying on traditions. As long as I say the right things and do the right things, then it doesn't matter whether or not I really love God. All that matters is that I do the right things. Even if my heart is not in it, if, if, even if I'm genuine or not, if I'm repentant or not, all that matters is what I do. As Jesus quotes from Isaiah, this, this is a vain sort of worship. It is a meaningless sort of worship. You imagine for a moment that a husband comes home with a bunch of flowers for his wife. Right? She sees the flowers. She's delighted. She says, darling, these are beautiful. What are these for? Imagine if he replies, don't mention it. It's what husbands do, and I'm just fulfilling my duty. (laughs) How do you think the wife would feel? Oh, gee, thanks. Now imagine he comes home, and he says, my love, I saw these flowers, and they reminded me of how beautiful you are. I know that husbands should give their wives flowers, and it is my utter delight to present these to you as a small token, a fraction of how much delight you give to me. All the women, there you go. Guys, just come back to me later, and I'll, I'll show you. Just write that down. Which honors the wife more? Of course it's the second one. Rules without heart? Duty without delight? This does not honor God. And then in verses 8 to 13, Jesus calls them out again, saying that these traditions are set up all for show. It it makes people look like they're obeying God. But really, these traditions are often used to avoid real heartfelt obedience He gives an example of honoring your mother and father. The fourth law, the fourth commandment that Moses gave says, you must honor your mother and your father. And in giving this law, God desires obedience that is heartfelt. He wants obedience from the heart. But what the Pharisees had done with this was heartless. They created a law that said, if you pledge money to God, then you can't use it for any other use, not even to honor your mother and father. And so now a new tradition had been set up that makes you look spiritual. Well, this money has been set aside for God, but it could be abused so easily. So your parents, they're old and they're frail and they need support. If you don't like them, you can get around that. You can get around honoring and and honoring them. You could say this money was dedicated to God. And so that will help you avoid taking care of your parents. Obeying the traditions means disobeying God's law. And that's just one example of many, Jesus says. 
Keeping these traditions can lead easily to hypocrisy and disobeying God's law. But but the main problem with creating all these rules and traditions is that it doesn't get to the heart of the issue. See in verse 15, Jesus gives a parable, a single sentence. And in verses 17 to 20, he explains it to his confused disciples. And it's pretty easy to follow, right? Jesus says that it's not what goes into you that makes you unclean before God. It's actually what comes out of your heart. Food goes into your mouth, travels down your esophagus, into your stomach, through your intestines, and then eventually out into the toilet bowl. Now, if you're in med school, that should be about as straightforward as it comes. So if you were to come to me and say, food goes into your mouth, down your esophagus, and into your heart, I'd tell you to quit now, go back home, you're going to be a horrible doctor. Right? Here's the point of what Jesus is saying. The Pharisees were obsessed with ritual washing because they thought that what caused you to become unclean was outside of you going in. But that's not what happens. Ritual washing helps clean your hands, but it is of no practical use in cleaning your heart. One of my old primary school friends told me that when he was younger, his mum caught him cussing and swearing, and so she grabbed him by the neck hauled him into the bathroom, and literally washed his mouth with soap. Dirty, filthy mouth. Wash it clean. 25 years later, and he's still cussing and swearing. No amount of soap washing was going to clean his heart. And that's Jesus' point in verses 21 to 23. Read with me verses 21 to 23. For from within... Out of the heart of man come evil thoughts, sexual morality, theft, murder, adultery, coveting, wickedness, deceit, sensuality, envy, slander, pride, foolishness. All these evil things come from within and they defile a person. You see those verses there. I think we tend to look at these verses and highlight the middle bits like this. Right? The emphasis falls then on all the evil. We highlight the evil and we tease them out. But what we should be noticing are the, actually the outer bits like this. From within, out of the heart of man. Come, they, all these evil things come from within. The repetition of the fact that all of these evil things are from within, out of the heart of man, coming from inside of us. This is what makes a person unclean before God. Here's the big so what then of this section. You get to the end of this section, you ask, so what? Jesus is the specialist surgeon putting his finger directly onto the problem. We have a heart problem, an inner heart problem. The heart, the the control center of your whole being, the throne where your mind, your will, and your emotions are all mixed together. Jesus is saying that our hearts are desperately sick, profoundly diseased. And that is why relying on traditions is just messed up. Our traditions are not bad in of themselves, right? There are many traditions and rules that we have that are good, right? Outside the church, you know, if you look out there, there are two parking spaces as a drop-off zone during church hours. I think that's a good thing. That's a good rule, right? The white lines there, therefore, they are no stopping zones. This is a, remi- this is a traffic reminder for everyone. It is a non-stopping zone, 
right? Because, and that's a good rule because it helps our neighbors uh, to see, to help them see when they exit the road, right? If you have a car there, it just blocks their view. That's very dangerous, right? We have a tradition in our church that we'd like to encourage everyone to stay behind after the service is done. Stay just a little bit longer and turn to the person next to you and share with them how God's word has impacted you and pray for each other. I love that tradition. The problem is when we start to rely on our traditions to make us okay with God. When we let, when we let them creep into our minds and our, when we let creep into our minds and our hearts a sense of assurance that if I keep this tradition, then I'll be closer to God, that God will be okay with me. Let me give two examples of how I've seen this in action, two examples of traditions that we have here in church. The first example is the Lord's Supper, communion, what we just ate before. If you've been with us for a while, you've noticed that we share the Lord's Supper every single week. Now, years ago, a woman visited our church and she said that her church had recently changed the frequency of the Lord's Supper. So instead of having it every week, they shared the meal every two weeks. Now, this particular week that she came to visit us, they were not sharing it back in her home church. And so she decided to join our church service because she knew that we have it weekly. Now, I asked her, why is it so important for you to have the Lord's Supper each week? And she simply replied, it doesn't feel right not to take the Lord's Supper each week. Now, that might have been her personal preference, but it could also be a little tradition that she relies upon so that she can feel right with God. Like, if she doesn't take it, then it would make her feel distant from God during the week. This meal... This meal that we have, it's it's a little cup and a little bit of bread. In of itself, it does very little. It's a little bit of sugar and and maybe some nourishment. And I know for some of you, you 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 wake up so late on Sunday mornings, you rush to church and communion is actually your mini breakfast. (laughs) I know the students, they've said this to me. But the purpose of this meal is to point to the spiritual reality behind it all. The bread representing Jesus' body given for us. The cup representing Jesus' blood shed for the forgiveness of our sins. We need to be very careful not to treat the Lord's Supper superstitiously. I am right with God, not because I take the Lord's Supper. I take this cup and this bread to remind me of why I'm right with God. Because of what Jesus has done for me. Second example, music. Now, there are lots of things about our church that are not perfect. But if there's one imperfection that I hear about the most, it's the music in our church. See, on the one hand, you've got some who would like to sing hymns and older songs more often. And on the other hand, you have people who say our songs are not worshipful enough. And by that, I think they mean that it doesn't sound professional enough or it doesn't build some worshipful atmosphere. Now, again, this might be personal preference. I love hymns. I think some of us like hymn books in the hand, and others would prefer our hands in the air. And if you know it's personal preference, 
Well, maybe we need to learn to love and appreciate the other side a little bit more. Or perhaps there is a warning for us in this passage. Maybe we've turned our music preference into a subtle tradition. If this tradition is not done your way, you don't really feel like you're worshipping God properly. I've heard some people say that if you take the hymn books out of church, God's presence will leave. And on the other hand, I've also heard people say SLE Church's service didn't feel like worship. Both positions are dangerous places to be. Because you're basically saying, if you don't do these things in this particular way, then God will not be pleased. It is the voice of the Pharisee speaking. Getting our traditions right, then, is not the solution. Because Jesus has said that it's our hearts that are the problem. And if it's our hearts that are the problem, then no amount of external cleaning will make it better. Now, does this mean that we are completely without hope then? Not quite. The next few stories show us how Jesus deals with the problem. Now, the Pharisees were stressed that unwashed hands would make them defiled. That word defiled there is the same word as unclean. Now, as we turn the page, we see Jesus deal with a little girl who has an unclean spirit. Survey time. In 2017, in uh, the New York Times, uh, they did a survey of their readers. They asked the question, uh, so the first question was to look at the world map and locate the country of North Korea, right? 1,746 adults responded, and here are their answers. Where would you put the blue dot? Now, the good news is no one put the blue dot on Singapore. It's a little alarming, however, how many blue dots are there on Australia. (laughs) Here is the actual location of North Korea. Now, what the New York Times discovered was that people who could accurately identify the location of North Korea were also a little bit more aware of what was going on politically in that country. They understood the location, they understood what was going on. Now, I'm, giving you, uh, I'm going to give you a survey. Here is a map of Israel. You can see the Sea of Galilee. It gets mentioned quite a few times in, in these last couple of chapters. And so I want you to spend three seconds working out where you think the cities of Tyre and Sidon are and where is the Decapolis. Time's up. Where did you put them? Here is where they actually are. Now, why is this all important? Next map. You see there that the areas that Jesus is now hanging out in, in our chapter, are actually Gentile regions. Outside of the control of Israel. And just like knowing the location of North Korea, understanding that these locations are in Gentile territory helps us understand what is going on in this passage. So, first, chapter 7, verse 24. Jesus heads off to the area of Tyre and Sidon, Gentile territory. Again, his reputation precedes him. The crowds are gathering around him. And in comes a woman who has a daughter with an unclean spirit, a a demon possessing her child. And notice in verse 26 that Mark points out 
her particular ethnic identity. Now, the woman was a Gentile, a Syrophoenician by birth. Jesus is in Gentile territory and is met by a Gentile woman. And now what he says next sounds awfully offensive. Have a look. Uh, She comes begging for help. And then have a look at what Jesus says in verse 27. Let the children be fed first, for it is not right to take the children's bread and throw it to the dogs. Now, can you imagine if Peter had Twitter at that time? And what would he have tweeted? You could just imagine he'd say, OMG, did Jesus just call that woman a dog? Hashtag unsubscribe, hashtag unfollow, hashtag back to fishing. All right? But have a look at verse 28 and how she responds. Yes, Lord. Yet even the dogs under the table eat the children's crumbs. She actually gets it. See, what might sound offensive to our ears was actually a very common way for Jews to speak about Gentiles. Dogs were not cute family pets that were dearly loved. They were unclean, wild animals. It was just a common way of talking about Gentiles. And Jesus is using this phrase not to affirm it. He's using it for the benefit of his disciples. See, remember after Jesus walked on the water, we read that the disciples were utterly astounded for they did not understand about the loaves. And just before, when Jesus gave his short parable about what was going on and what comes in and what comes out that makes you unclean, when the disciples ask about it, Jesus again says to them, then are you also not without understanding? The disciples don't get who Jesus is and what he's on about. And so when he calls this woman a dog... That should be very clear. That is something they would very easily understand. But where they don't understand Jesus, this woman understands him. You go back now to verse 28 and how she addresses Jesus. She calls him Lord. She knows who he is. Notice again in verse 27 what Jesus says. Let the children, which is a reference to Israel, let the children be fed first. Now, she hears the word first, and she knows. She picks it up. Hey, if they get fed first, does that mean there's a chance afterwards for me? Does that mean that there will be some blessing left for me? She knows that she is not entitled to anything from Jesus. Jesus is the Jewish Messiah. He is Israel's king. She gets called a dog and she accepts it. She knows that she's got nothing to offer Jesus and she has no right to ask anything of Jesus. But when she hears that the children will be fed first, she's encouraged that there might be some blessings to spare. She's happy to pick up the crumbs and scraps like dogs do. And what does Jesus say to her? He says to her, you are not entitled, but by grace, you are included. Because she recognized she was not entitled to anything, she is included by grace. Her daughter is healed. 
The healing of the deaf and the mute man says the same thing. Jesus moves from Gentile northwest to Gentile southeast into the Decapolis. Now, the last time Jesus was here, remember, he healed the demon-possessed man and all those pigs drowned themselves in the sea. Now he meets a deaf and a mute man. And at the start of our passage, people are again touching Jesus' garments and, and being healed. And Jesus here takes a radically different path. He pulls the deaf man aside privately. He puts his fingers in his ears. He spits and he utters the words, be opened and the man is healed. It's going to be no mistaking it. Jesus has healed this man. And then Jesus charges, I love this, Jesus charges him, don't tell anyone what happened, but if you spent your whole life unable to speak, are you going to keep quiet now? And that's what ends up happening. He tells everyone all around what Jesus has done. Another Gentile experiencing the blessings of God by the undeserved grace of Jesus. Still in the Decapolis, we turn to our final scene in chapter 8, verses 1 to 9. Now, I'm not going to go through every single detail in these verses, except to say that there is an incredible sense of deja vu. Uh, Deja vu is the French phrase that literally means already seen. The feeding of the 4,000, it feels so familiar. It's like we've already seen it. But of course we have. We saw something like this last week with the feeding of the 5,000. Now, when you go home today, let me encourage you to do a little exercise. If you've got a computer or you know someone who has a computer and can do this, copy the story of the feeding of the 5,000 into a Word document and put right next to it in in a second column the feeding of the 4,000. Print them on the same page side by side. It should look something like this. And then I want you to do is I want you to read those stories together and I want you to highlight and link the repeated phrases and ideas between each story. It should look something like this. And what you should end up discovering is that this story in chapter 8 is intentionally told in the same way, using the same language as the feeding of the 5,000 in chapter 6. Now, why is this? Remember that the feeding of the 5,000 had the brushstrokes of Exodus all over it. The feeding of the 5,000 was meant to tell us that Jesus is the new Moses. He is the one who is going to bring the greater and the bigger and the newer Exodus. Exodus was that big salvation moment in the Old Testament. Well, Jesus is now going to bring an even bigger salvation. Remember, it's all about location. In chapter 6, Jesus is in and around his hometown of Nazareth when he feeds the 5,000. He is with the Jews. Here in chapter 8, he is in the Decapolis. He is with the Gentiles. Remember that this second story is intentionally told in the same way as the first one. Are you with understanding? Mark is telling us that the big salvation that that Jesus brings now includes us Gentiles. And not only that, but these three stories together, the Syrophoenician woman, the deaf man, culminating in the feeding of the 4,000, they also show us that Gentiles don't just receive crumbs. We receive the full blessings. Jesus came first to the children of Israel, 
And like dogs, we are all waiting for any crumbs and scraps. And what these final verses of chapter 7 and 8 show us is that Jesus' mission would not only fulfill God's promises to Israel, but they would also wonderfully include all of us. It would wonderfully include the whole world. Jesus hasn't just come for Israel. He hasn't just come for Singaporeans or Malaysians or Chinese. He's come for everyone. Everyone can be included. Everyone in this world has a major heart problem. Jesus, the expert specialist surgeon, who not only is, is the one who not only diagnoses the problem, but also provides the solution. On the 3rd of December, 1967, a medical breakthrough occurred in Group Shure Hospital in Cape Town, South Africa. Surgeon Christian Barner performed the first ever human-to-human heart transplant. It was possible now to give someone whose heart was just as good as dead, to give them a healthy heart and another shot at life. Now, as you can imagine, doing a heart transplant is no easy thing. Now, in order for this to happen, you, not only, you need a patient who is just about ready to die, right? Their heart is about ready to give up. And then you need a heart donor. Now, the heart donor can't just be anyone. It has to be a suitable donor. It has to be someone compatible, someone healthy, someone with the same blood type, someone whose heart matched the patient's so it wouldn't be rejected. And most importantly, the donor had to be dead. Just to be clear. Because you can't take the heart out of a living person and give it to someone else. We all have a massive heart problem. From each of our hearts spew our sins. Our hearts are the fountain of our sinful thoughts, our sinful words, our sinful actions. We are, as Paul writes, dead in our sins and transgressions. Our hearts are spiritually dead. We need that heart transplant and we need that heart donor. And Jesus is not only the specialist who identifies our problem, but the perfect heart donor who gives his life so that we might live. Jesus, the perfect human with a perfect heart, is perfectly compatible with all of us. And he offers, his heart trans- he offers this heart transplant, this bigger salvation, ex- this exodus kind of salvation. He offers forgiveness of our sins and new life with him and reconciliation to his father. And he offers that to Jews and Gentiles. Praise God. And remember, we come to Jesus for this heart transplant, just like this Syrophoenician woman. We come only to Jesus, come on, we can only come to Jesus humbly, offering nothing. There are no Jews among us here, right? Yes. Just checking. There are no Jews among us here, or well, not that I'm aware of. We're all Gentiles. And as Gentiles, we must remember that God owed us nothing. 
Do you realize that if Mark had left out these verses in chapters 7 and a little bit of 8, then the good news that we've seen so far in the Gospel of Mark would be meaningless to us. Jesus is God's king, but Mark is showing us that Jesus is the Messiah. He is the king of the Jews. It's not obvious why this would be good news to us Gentiles. Jesus is bringing his new amazing kingdom that is free from evil spirits and sickness and sin, but there's no automatic citizenship rights for Gentiles. Jesus has the power to save us from death, but what gives you any clue that he would save you, a Gentile? As we come to the end of these chapters, we might need to reflect on whether or not we have presumed that we would be included. Have you felt a sense of entitlement? It's fair. As Andrew Sack and Tim Hyorn say in their book, Dig Deeper into the Gospels, we got upset at Jesus calling a woman a dog. And it hadn't even occurred to us that we might be dogs too. Now, we're just like her. We bring nothing to offer Jesus. We deserve nothing. We can only humbly come. She got it right, and she received blessings from Jesus. And praise God, praise God that we are included. Dogs can be saved. Let me pray. Father in heaven, thank you so much that we sitting in this room can be saved by the gospel of Jesus, that it is good news to us because he has included us. We stand on the outside. We were alienated from your covenant with your people. We were alienated from the commonwealth of Israel. We had no hope and we were lost. We, were, we, were direct, we, we could see the blessings and the covenants, but we couldn't access them. And by your grace alone, we are now part of your people. Father, help us to never take this for granted. Help us to never presume that we deserve this. Father, you are not fair because if we wanted fairness, we would all deserve judgment. Father, you are gracious and for that, we will thank you for eternity. Amen.